So the winning run is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Well, how many of you were um, alive and watching that night in 1986? Anybody here? Were you watching that night? What a miserable end! to a long ball game. It was game six of the 1986 World Series. The Boston Red Sox had a three-game to two-game lead. It was the bottom of the 10th inning. And on two different occasions during that ball game, the Red Sox were just one strike away from being the world champions, but they couldn't get it done. So finally, as you just saw, Mookie Wilson steps to the plate, hits a, a slow roller to first. All Bill Buckner had to do, all he had to do was pick up the stupid baseball, touch first base, and the Red Sox are the world champions. And the ball rolled through his legs. And by the way, the Mets went on to win the 1986 World Series. Now, even though Bill Buckner had a 22-year major league career, collected 2,700 hits, had a career batting average of nearly 300 and won a National League batting title, he is remembered for that one mistake that he made in 1986. Doesn't hardly seem fair, does it? In our text today, we'll be in John chapter 20, if you want to join me there. We're going to be introduced to another man whose entire life as a believer is remembered and summed up by one bout with doubt. Even today, in 2018, you may hear somebody use the phrase, don't be a doubting Thomas. Oh, you're just a doubting Thomas. I mean, even people who are non-church people use that phrase. I'm not sure they understand the context, but they use the phrase. A doubting Thomas. And it actually comes from the Gospel of John and chapter 20. I want to begin reading this morning in verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, that is, they said unto Thomas when he finally showed up, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within. And this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, it says in verse 26, as before in the previous verses, the doors were shut. And it's not like Jesus came and knocked on the door and gave him the secret password and they opened the door. He just appeared, Casper the ghost-like. But he wasn't a ghost. 
He was in a physical body. He was in his post-resurrection body. And he appears in the midst of them. And he says again, as he said in, the, in his prior appearance, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, Believest because thou hast seen me? Or, or excuse me, because thou hast seen me, thou believest. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. The first time that we read of Thomas, you may remember this um, in our study of the Gospel of John, the first time we read of Thomas is in John chapter 11. If you still have your Bible open, just flip back a few pages there to John chapter 11. In chapter 10, Jesus had been teaching the truth uh, concerning himself, how that he was literally God in the flesh. And that truth so enraged the Jewish religious leaders that they sought to capture him and to put him to death. But we know that Jesus was able to escape and leave the city and was able to cross back over the Jordan River. And it wasn't long after that that some messengers came to him and told him about his dear friend Lazarus and how he was, was sick and dying. And we know the story. Jesus didn't go immediately. He waited three days. After hearing the news of his friend and how he was sick and how he was dying, Jesus chose to stay where he was for three days and after three days, he told his disciples, guys, we need to go see Lazarus. But here's what they knew that meant. That meant that they were going to have to go right back into the territory where his life, and no doubt theirs as well, had just been threatened. And so in verse 8, we'll not read it, but in verse 8, um, some of them challenged that logic of going back to that area so soon. And Jesus answered their challenge. And then in verse 16, he said this. If you're in John 11, look at verse 16. It says this, Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Many automatically want to look at those words of Thomas and accuse him of doubt and fear. But may I submit to you this morning that that is only because they know what he did in John chapter 20. I mean, we have an advantage. We, we can look at the Bible. We can read of what we just read of John chapter 20. I said, I'm not going to believe. And so now they go back, and in retrospect, they look at chapter 11, and they look as, well, he's always been a doubter. He's, he's always uh, been a, a non-believer, a, a man with, with little faith. But may I suggest this morning that if all we knew about Thomas was this verse right here, John eleven sixteen? 16, if this is all we knew about Thomas, then I would suggest to you this morning that we would have a totally different take on these words. That we would look at that and say, what a man of faith. 
What a man of courage. Which, by the way, is the correct way to interpret those words. No doubting here. No fear here. Thomas was willing to follow Jesus even unto death, if that's what it meant. And fortunately, the other disciples went with him and Jesus, and they got to witness the miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you turn a few pages to the right, you're going to find John chapter 13 and another reference to this man named Thomas. He and the other disciples are with Jesus, and they're in an upper room. It's the night of, of Jesus' arrest, and he talks with Thomas, and he talks with the others, and he begins to tell them again of his betrayal and crucifixion. And then Peter speaks up at the beginning of verse 36. And he asks Jesus where he's going. And Jesus offers this reply. Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterward. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Well, after I betray you three times. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice and in verse 14 he says let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you unto myself, <clears throat> that where I am, there you may be also. And then he said this, And whither I go, ye know, and the way, ye know. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that at that point, Thomas spoke up, and he said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? To which Jesus responded with these great words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, or no man cometh unto the Father, but by me. And then our third look at the life of Thomas is here in our text in John chapter 20. We're looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus as we near the end of our study of the Gospel of John. We saw a couple of weeks ago how Jesus responded to Mary, who was filled with sorrow. And then our last time together, we saw how he appeared to his disciples as they were fearful. They were feared with fear, and they were hiding in an upper room. And now today, we see him as he appears to Thomas, who is filled with doubt. Now, church, let's not be too hard on Thomas for doubting. Because he was not the only one of Jesus' followers to doubt. If you 
put the gospel narratives together. And you do, as I'm going to do for a moment here, and you step outside of John's narrative. For example, if you go over to the, to the book of Mark, you're going to read that when Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb and she went and told the other disciples, Mark says they didn't believe her. They didn't believe that Jesus had resurrected. And then later on in the Gospel of Mark, the same chapter, you read one of my favorite stories. I love preaching on the, the two that were traveling the road back to Emmaus. They were leaving Jerusalem. The, they had followed Jesus, and they had dedicated themselves to Jesus, and now he's dead, and he's gone, and, and it was all a fake. It was, he was a fraud. It was all a farce, and they had followed him for no reason, and now they're going back to Emmaus, and in the course of their journey, Jesus meets up with them, and they don't know it's Jesus, and they in, they're talking, and, and something's going on inside of them, they say. And so Jesus, they, they get ready to, to go into their house, and Jesus makes as though he's going to just keep going, and they stop him, and they invite him in for a meal. And it's during the course of that meal that their spiritual eyes are open. Their understanding is enlightened that Jesus was alive. And so they rush back to Jerusalem, and they go find the other disciples, and they tell them, we have seen Jesus. But here's what you read. They refused to believe. So let's cut Thomas some slack here. He wasn't the only person to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we never hear of doubting Matthew. We never hear of doubting James. Nobody ever calls anybody else a doubting John. Why is it that we just hear of a doubting Thomas? Now, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think that, I think that, that he gets a bum rap. He really does. Well, preacher, didn't he doubt? Yeah, we just read it. He did. But can I ask you this this morning? Have you ever doubted? Have you ever doubted whether or not this whole Christian life thing was worth it? Have you ever doubted whether or not really following Jesus was all it's cracked up to be? Have you ever doubted that, that maybe giving up this and this and this to, to live the Christian life. Have you, ever, have you ever thought to yourself, man, I just look at I see everybody else and, and I'm giving this step up for Jesus. Is, is it worth it? Am I talking to the right crowd this morning? Does Jesus really love me? Does Jesus really forgive? Does Jesus really keep me safe? Is there really a heaven? Does God, does God really care? Have you ever doubted? Let's cut Thomas some slack. Because the truth is, we've all doubted. And most of those doubts fit into three categories. And I'll divide them up like this. There are intellectual doubts these are doubts most often raised by unbelievers you may work with some you may have some in your family you may have friends and acquaintances that are intellectual doubters and they ask you questions like is the bible really the word of god is Jesus really the Son of God? Did he really raise from the dead? These are intellectual doubts. And I want to give you something this morning real quick from our text. Two other verses real quick. 
If you are an intellectual doubter here this morning, and by the way, that's fine. You're welcome at Fellowship Baptist Church. Maybe you have friends that are intellectual doubters. Maybe you have family who just aren't where you're at, and they've got doubts. I want to show you a couple of verses real quick at the end of John chapter 20. And John writes this, And many other signs, miracles, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But, he said, these are written. These miracles, these sayings of Jesus, they're written. And here's why. That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Here's my suggestion this morning. If you're an intellectual doubter, if you have family or friends or acquaintances who are intellectual doubters, here, here's my suggestion to you. Have them read John's Gospel. And then read it again and read it again. Because John said, I wrote these things so that you could be convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. And that in believing that, you would call on his name and be a partaker of eternal life. That's why we titled this series, The Starting Point. John's Gospel is a great starting point. But not only are there intellectual doubts, but there are also spiritual doubts. These are the doubts that believers tend to deal with. Although many times... We deal with them in secret because we don't want to let other Christians know that we actually may have doubts about this whole thing. We don't want to tell anybody most of the time that we're not really sure if we're saved. Brother Tyler preached a great two messages on that and he was honest and upfront and very transparent about his struggles with that very thing the assurance of his salvation even though he grew up in a pastor's home by the way pray for him it's in your bullet and he's starting a revival today at bethany baptist church in lubbock but he was very honest very open very transparent about his struggles with the assurance of salvation even though he was raised in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, went to every Christian church camp and every church activity that was ever scheduled, he still wrestled with whether or not he was saved. And if you weren't here for that series, I would encourage you to go online and listen to those two messages. They'll help you. Am I really saved? And why do I struggle to pray? Why do I struggle with my thought life? Are the promises of God really true? These are spiritual doubts that some people struggle with but really never admit it. And then there are circumstantial doubts. And these are all the questions that begin with why. Why did my child die? Why didn't God heal my mom? Why did God allow me to suffer so much abuse? Honest doubts, legitimate doubts, but doubts nonetheless. These are the questions that we meet at the intersection of biblical faith and the pain of living in a fallen world. And sometimes it's a head-on collision. And in my experience, these are the toughest doubts of all that we tend to just sweep under the rug. But listen to me this morning. When we refuse to deal with circumstantial doubts, they soon become spiritual doubts 
which eventually become intellectual doubts, which is why a lot of people end up leaving church altogether because they just can't put it together. Lee Strobel, maybe you've heard of him, is a former atheist. His wife got saved. She came to know the Lord, and that prompted him to begin investigating the biblical claims about Christ. And he's honest and upfront about it. He set out on this journey to prove that his wife was a nut job. He set out to disprove all of this Christianity stuff, all of this Jesus stuff, all of this Bible stuff, because he wanted to put his wife in her place. And in his research, and in his investigation, it led to Jesus Christ and his own conversion and his own calling upon the name of the Lord. And here's what he says. Doubt is a virus that infects all people. And he's right. So the issue this morning is not do we doubt, but rather what do we do when we doubt? When our faith fails, when it falters and it's not as strong as it once was, And these doubts begin to rise up in us. What do we do? And we'll get to that, but real quick, I want to give you a couple of misconceptions about doubt. And the first one is this, doubt is unforgivable. There is no sin that is unforgivable except the sin of refusing Jesus Christ. And for those who would would think, well, if, if you're... I don't even know why you're in the pulpit then if you've got all of these doubts. Well, what do you do with John the Baptist? When he was in prison and he began to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't hide it. He didn't try to cover it up. He was honest. As a matter of fact, he sent some of his followers to go to Jesus and ask him, Hey, are you the one? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus answers them and sends the answer back to John the Baptist. And the answer was not this. Hey, John, you need to grow up. You you just need to man up. You need to increase your faith. You need to blah, 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 blah. That was not Jesus' response. Jesus gave him evidence and proof that, yes, I am the Messiah, and here's why. And just to prove to you that doubt is not unforgivable, you know what Jesus went on to say about John in Matthew chapter 11? He said, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Doubt is not unforgivable. And doubt isn't always bad. Doubt's not always bad. I was approached recently by one of our members who had received a phone call that she didn't take the first time because she wasn't familiar with the number. But when they called back and she answered, the person on the other end stated that they were with the IRS and that the IRS had filed a lawsuit against her and that there was a warrant out for her arrest Uh, by our local police department and that her bank accounts and her credit cards had been seized. And then they told her that, that she owed X amount of dollars plus late fees and attorney fees. What do you suppose would have happened had she not doubted the validity of that person's claim? She knew something wasn't right. Just didn't add up. I'll tell you what would have happened. She would have been out the money, and Whistlebritches on the other end would have been that much more rich. So not all doubt is bad. Listen, I don't don't think there's a thing in the world wrong with honestly questioning something that you hear preached from the pulpit. 
There's a right way to do it. You don't need to go off on a tangent and get all high and mighty and holier than thou and haughty and arrogant. But listen, if what I preach, if the word of God cannot stand to be questioned, then it's pretty weak. Amen. In his book, Outrageous Faith, or excuse me, Outrageous Claims, Lee Strobel, who I mentioned a moment ago, he takes the word faith, F-A-I-T-H, and he makes an acronym on which he hangs five things that we can do to protect ourselves from doubt's ill effects. And I want to share those with you this morning as quickly as I can. When we feel overwhelmed by doubt, the first thing that we need to do is find the root of our doubt. Where are these doubts stemming from? And I'll suggest a, a few things to you real quick this morning. Sometimes our doubt is the result of an incomplete understanding of God. Sometimes we just don't have a biblical concept of God. All we seem to know about God is His love. And so when bad things happen in our lives, we begin to question His love. And we don't take into consideration His justice, or His holiness, or His righteousness, or His omnipotence. And so we have an incomplete understanding of who God is. And when we only see one facet of God's life, but we don't understand that there are other parts of who He is and what He is, with our limited understanding of these things, we are sure to develop doubts about why God does what He does and why He doesn't do what we think He should do. For example, we believe uh, God promises health and wealth to those who exercise enough faith. And then we come to the end of the month and we don't have enough money left. Or we get sick and God doesn't heal us. Then we automatically come away doubting whether God is who he says he is or who that guy on TV said he is. The problem with this kind of doubting is not God. Are you listening? God's not the problem. He never promised those things in His Word. Just some shyster who's out to get your money promised those things in His Word. God never promises health and wealth. I don't care whose book you read. The only person getting wealthy is the guy whose book you just bought. So stop it. The problem is an inaccurate view of his promises and his character because we've not studied Scripture completely. We've just taken the word of somebody out there. Another source of doubt is found in people who base their faith solely on their feelings. How many of you know that's never a wise decision? Mercy. When they become a Christian, there's this overwhelming emotional response to what's just happened in their heart and many will say it's like a ton of bricks was uh, taken away and all of this and it's wonderful and I'm not demeaning that I'm not discrediting that it ought to be an emotional thing when our sins are gone and we know that we're going to heaven when we die that ought to be emotional but when our feet come back down to the ground and those same struggles are there, and those same issues are there, and those same roadblocks are there in our life. And we start feeling like we felt before we got saved. Then we start to doubt. Because that feeling's not there anymore. I'm just not feeling what I used to feel. I, uh, man, a couple of days ago, I, I felt this way, and now I'm not feeling that way. Well, welcome to life. And if we base... Our life on our, the way we feel, then absolutely we're going to have doubts about God. Doubts can also come as a result of our disobedience to God. When we willfully choose to disobey God and His Word, then we are going to experience a lack of peace because we're not right with God. 
And we're going to experience a, a sense of being separated from him. And that's for a good reason. Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 59, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his faith from you that he will not hear. You may be here this morning, and, and you may be in this situation right now. You say, well, it's like I'm like God is so far away, and God is so distant, and, and it's like there's this great gulf between me and God. Here's what I would encourage you to do this morning. Look at your life. Examine your life. Is there disobedience in your life? Because that disobedience puts us at odds with God and when we're at odds with God then we're going to have questions and the devil's going to use that to create doubt and then I'd say this doubts often come because people fail to put themselves in the places where faith is built you know what the answer to Thomas's doubt is he should have been in church, so to speak. He should have been where he knows he should have been. He should have been with the other disciples. But he wasn't there for whatever reason. And so now we find him filled with doubt. Now, who's to blame here? The blame doesn't fall on Jesus. It doesn't fall on the other disciples. It falls on Thomas. Because he missed the place where faith is built. And so consequently, his faith lagged behind. And how many people are like that? Now listen, I want you to get this right here. Complaining about a lack of faith. Man, I just wish I had the faith he has. Or I wish I had the faith she has. Or I wish I was as strong as they are. Listen, complaining about a lack of faith. When you're not consistently in the places where faith grows, it's like complaining about the darkness in the basement with the lights off and the blanket pulled over your head. Oh, it's just so dark in here. I love you this morning, but you need to quit complaining about not having the same level of faith that other Christians have if you're not willing to do what they do, and that is put, put yourself in the places where faith grows. Again, it's like complaining about the darkness in the basement with the lights off and the covers pulled up over your head. Do something about it. Throw the covers off, get up and turn the light on and quit whining. I love you. If you don't want to be in the dark, then for crying out loud, do something about it. Well, preacher, where are those places? I'm so glad you asked. And if you're looking for some aha moment here, it's not, this, it's not going to be now because this is not something that most of you have not heard before. But I'm, I'm not pressed with the responsibility to create new things. My job is just to preach what's in the book. And so you've heard these before. They've never changed. They never will change. There are three places where faith grows. Number one, the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and what, church? Hearing by the Word of God. Now listen, I really do hope you leave here today with a fresher faith than when you came in. I really do. But listen to me. These few moments together are not going to be enough to sufficiently feed your faith and starve your doubt. Think of it like this. Go home today, eat lunch, but don't eat again all week until next Sunday at 1045. And tell me how that works out for you. Tell me how that works out for the people you live with. You tracking with me? Our, listen if, the, listen, if the next time you have any connection with the Word of God is the next time you see me, you're going to be in trouble. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Listen, our time together this morning is simply an inducement to a week of private time on your own in the Word. And if that's not happening, if that's not going on, then your faith is not growing. So we're pretty, I just don't get it. I do. You're not in the Word of God. You can't just lay your Bible on the bed, on the nightstand, or on the dresser, or on the kitchen table, wherever it is, you keep it in your car. You keep it there because you want it next time you come to church. Listen, no wonder you're struggling. No wonder there are doubts. Doubt is, is or excuse me, faith is strengthened in the Word of God. It's also built through the people of God. I read this quote recently by Paul Tripp. He said, enough, enough of individualized Jesus and me Christianity. You cannot live an isolated, separated, privatized Christian life and be spiritually healthy and productive. Growth in grace is a community project. Mm. I refuse to go off on a tangent here. But let me just ask you this morning. How much time during the week do you spend in church with the people of God? I was going to use the time to Talk about our Bible study classes at 9.45 on Sunday morning. If you come to that, now you've got two hours of spiritual food. I would, I would talk about ministry involvement. That's how you're going to meet people. That's how you're going to build friendships and relationships as you involve yourself in ministry with the people of God. Faith is strengthened. Faith is built in the Word of God. It's built with the people of God, and it's built in the church of God. Paul wrote to a group of Hebrew Christians whose faith, listen, whose faith was failing. They were wanting to go back. They were wanting to turn back. They were wanting to go back to their old life of, of, of Jewish religion and rites and rituals and living under the law because life out here, living the faith, walking with Jesus was getting too hard. It was getting too difficult. And so they were wanting to turn back. And Paul issues all kinds of admonitions and encouragements in the book of Hebrews as to why they need to keep going with Jesus, how that Jesus is so much better. And in the midst of all of that, he says this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, for not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You know what we're doing right here? We're assembling ourselves together. And we'll do it again tonight at 6.30. And we'll do it again Wednesday night at 7. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Look at that phrase. And so much the more. Who can read that and honestly believe they need less church? No. In these days that we're living in, in the, the days prior to the coming of Jesus, we need more and more and more church. For you to say, well, I don't need Sunday night church. I got too much to do. Then your faith is going to grow weak. Well, I don't need Wednesday night church. I got so much to do. Then your faith is going to grow weak. Again, I love you this morning, but my job as the pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church is to admonish you and encourage you and help you grow. And that's what I'm trying to do this morning. Your faith is built in the Word of God, with the people of God, in the church of God. That's where faith is built. And I can't do anything for you 
Jesus can't do anything for you if you're not willing to do something for yourself. It's not that there are not ample opportunities provided throughout the week. It's that we don't take advantage of them. Now let me ask you this and I'll move on. If your faith isn't growing, then what is? Doubt. You're not staying neutral. If you're not going forward for Jesus, you're going back. It's just the way it is. So we need to find the the root of our doubts. And I've got to hurry. Number two, ask God and others for help. We talked about John the Baptist. Listen, if you're struggling with your faith, then reach out to somebody. Reach out to your pastor. Reach out to a good Christian friend. Reach out to your, your small group leader. Whoever it is, let them know. Be honest. Listen, I'll never degrade you. For struggling in your faith. Ask somebody for help. Number three, implement a course of treatment. First of all, if your doubt is a result of a question you have regarding the Bible, again, come to me. Come to Brother Tyler, Brother Mike, Brother Kay, Brother Sid, Brother Paul. Listen, come to one of the deacons, go to a Christian friend. If your doubt is the result of an inability to take God at his word, well, preacher, I know that's what God said, but I just don't know. Listen, if that's where you're at this morning, can I just encourage you to step out by faith. Believe the word of God and act on it no matter how you feel because God promises a good result. Implement a course of treatment. T, number four, take care of your spiritual health. I hit that pretty hard a moment ago when I talked about the Word of God, the people of God, and the house of God. So I won't, I won't go through all of that again. But here's what I know. When our body's strong, we're less susceptible to sickness. So here's what that tells me spiritually, that when my faith is strong... I'm going to be less susceptible to doubt. I'm going to be less susceptible to the fiery darts, as Paul calls them in the book of Ephesians, that that Satan loves to hurl at us. And then the letter H. Hold your remaining questions in tension. Now let me explain what he means by that. We have to have faith to realize that there are some things about this life that we just will not understand. Believe me. Believe me. I will go to my grave with some questions. God, I just don't get it. This makes zero sense to me. As I've said before, God is under no obligation to explain himself to us. And again, I will say that even if he did offer an explanation, Would that really change anything? Oh, well, yeah, now I understand why you let my loved one die. Now I get it. Now it makes perfect sense. Seriously? If God explained, well, this is why this happened, none of us are going to respond that way. There are just some things that we're not going to understand because we're not God. And who wants to serve a God that rules a universe that we can understand? Because then that makes us as smart as him. But 
there are just some things that we're going to have to hold in tension. Our, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah said this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. End of story. That's it. In our humanity, we're limited. And because of our limitations, we cannot expect to understand everything there is to an unlimited God. There are some mysteries that just will not be unraveled. It doesn't matter how long we live. We don't have the answers to many of our questions. But we know the God who does. And there are times when doubt comes that we must trust His timing and patiently wait for the answers that we seek. So when it comes to doubt, and we will all be there, we need to find the source of it. Are they due to an incomplete understanding of, of who God is? Is it the, 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 uh, Do they come from the fact that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts? Are we doubting because our faith is built on feelings rather than the facts of the Word of God? Are we doubting due to some form of disobedience in our life? Does God seem distant and now we're starting to, to drift in our thinking and in our perspective and we're beginning to wonder, well, is this really all what God said it was? And it could be because of disobedience and our sins have separated us, not, not in terms of salvation, but just in terms of our relationship and our sense of closeness with God. Or are your doubts rooted in the fact that you just aren't consistently putting yourself in the places where faith is built? Ask God, ask God and others for help, implement a course of treatment, take good care of your spiritual health, and we're just going to have to hold some questions in tension until we get to heaven. We just do. Would you pray with me today?